Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, it is, uh, it is so good to be here today, and uh, we're going to take a short amount of time to look at the Word of God. And when I was away, we, um, we were with Miracle Connect, which is an organisation we support. We spent some time looking at some of the work that they're doing right across the Middle East. It was an incredible opportunity to meet people and see some of the fruit of what God is doing. And one of the nights we had dinner with some of the Miracle Connect team, some of their sort of their board and, and their staff. And I happened to find myself sitting directly across the table from a fellow pastor, a guy from Dallas, Texas, Uh, who leads just a small church of about 20,000 people. And as we're sitting there, uh, we had this great chat about life and about ministry. And I was just sort of asking questions about what God's doing. And he's rattling off talking about the fact that they've, you know, they've got something like $80 million worth of assets. And he's saying, we've got $16 million worth of debt, but God's faithful and we're expanding. And it started as 11 people in a in a living room and now there's, you know, tens of thousands and he's just rattling on all this stuff and I'm asking questions thinking, flippin' heck, who the heck am I sitting next to right here? And uh, he's sharing all this stuff and then after a long period of time of him talking to me, he then says, now, he goes, I want to hear about you. And he says to me, he goes, "I'm, I'm just hearing that there's, you know, you guys are having great success down there. And he goes, tell me about it. I'm not going to do the American accent anymore. <laughs> and a strange, unfamiliar feeling came upon me in that I didn't know what to say. <laughs> because I was sitting there thinking, great success. Like, what? What do you even mean by that? You know, like, How do you define, how do you quantify success, especially in a church setting, right? Like, what even is that language? So I sort of just sat awkwardly and quietly for a minute and then kind of talked about the fact, well, I was like, you know, well, you know, God's good. God does, he's doing some good things. And I was like, you know, we're nothing like you guys, but God's been faithful and we've we've seen him like some planting of campuses and we're seeing people get saved and it's, it's exciting what God's doing. But let me ask more about what God's doing over there. But actually that, that question started to resonate with me over the remainder of that trip. And it's something we've talked about, you know, as a leadership, but how do you quantify success? Let me tell you, the Oxford Dictionary defines it in a very particular way. The Oxford Dictionary says that success is the accomplishment of an aim or a purpose. But here's the thing about that, the accomplishment of an aim or a purpose. You see, that's even difficult to quantify in the most mundane, unimportant of things. I watched a soccer documentary while we were away, an English football documentary. And a part of it, there was a saying that I really liked. They said, of all the unimportant things in life, soccer is the most important. (laughs) 
But they told the story of this English football team who set out their goal, their aim was to win the, I'm going to call it premiership. I don't know if that's what they call it over there. He said that was their goal and their aim. And they went out and throughout the course of the season, they won more games than any team in any professional league had ever won in the history of the English football profession, the, the association. No one had ever won more games ever except for one team who happened to do it in the exact same season, in the exact same league, which meant they didn't win the championship. So they won more games than anyone had ever won in the history of football except for one team, and they still didn't win the championship. So here's the question. Is that season a success or a failure? Because the goal was to win the championship, which they didn't do. So success is hard to define, right? It's that old saying, there's a thin line between failure and success. Even in, even in other mundane things, consider, for example, when we were in Cairo, we had a goal of crossing the road. <laughs> now, if you've ever been to Cairo, just pick, it's like lanes are a suggestion, not a rule. Okay, give ways, not really a thing. We got there, Craig says, he goes, we're gonna play a game, kids. It's called spot the traffic light. Because there's just not traffic lights anywhere. There's roundabouts and people just go. It is the most like crazy place you'll ever visit. And so we had this goal of crossing the road. This was a four-lane road on one side, four-lane on the other, medium strip in the middle. We're all standing there like, let's go to the other side. Craig and Kathy, being the barefoot rebels that they are, just took off. And there in the middle, Joe and I with our kids, being quite unfamiliar with these circumstances, are left waiting for a gap. And we continue to wait and we continue to wait. We continue to wait. The Schultz and the extended family are in the middle of the road kind of cheering us on. Eventually, we sort of, there was a bit of a gap and we committed. So we got to the middle of the road and now we're all standing there again, waiting for an opportunity to cross the next four lanes, which never came. I don't know how long we were there. It felt like a very long time, but we're all just waiting there until eventually a couple of local lads who obviously had seen our plight and were just like, you silly folk, <laughs> ran out into the middle of the road and then they just stepped out. They just stepped out into oncoming traffic and all of a sudden the cars kind of slowed and we're like, all right, there's some locals, let's just follow them. So we're all just going with them and eventually we get over the road. Those guys, we didn't realise they were doing that for us. We just thought they were crossing the road and we were following them. They got to the other side, they turned around and went straight back. Oh, thanks. Like they'd seen us and they'd said, yeah, let's get to the other side of the road. Now, here's the question. Did we succeed or fail? Because technically, in one sense, we got eventually to the other side of the road. But in another sense, we didn't get there at all. They got there and we followed them. How do you quantify success? And how do you quantify success within a church context? Is it this? Is it lots of people? You know, is it what he was talking about? Million dollars worth of assets? Is it, how do you quantify success in the church? And here's the thing, this is actually a really important question for us to ask. You know why? Because there's a whole bunch of passages in scripture which remind us that a day is coming when we have to stand before the God of heaven and give an account for the life that we lived. And the other passage 
which talks about the fact that those who teach will be judged more harshly. So for me, this is really important because I don't want to get to the end of my days and stand before a holy God and say, look what I did for you and for him to look me in the eye and say, David, I didn't ask you to do any of that. You know, William Carey, the famous Baptist missionary, said a fascinating thing once. He said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Isn't that a profound word? I don't want to be that guy who gets to the end of his life like the guy with, who buried the one talent and just say, Lord, here's what you gave me. And he said, no, I asked you to do something with that. I don't want to get to the end of my days and have wasted the gifts and the call of God. I want to get to the end of my days and stand before that holy God knowing that I'd lived my life for Jesus and that I stand before him and he says, hey, well done, good and faithful servant, enter your rest. How about you? How do we quantify success in the church? And I think the more I've thought about it, the more I've prayed about it, the more I've been led to this beautiful passage in the book of Matthew and realized actually it's pretty simple. Let's read it again, Matthew 28. And if we can put it up there, if you have your Bibles, you can get it out. Otherwise, you can read it uh, with me on your phones or the word in your hand. But it says, Matthew 28 from verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I want you to underline that. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. You know the context if you've been around church for a while. Jesus has lived, he's done ministry, he's healed the sick, he's raised the dead, he's given the blind sight, he's done incredible things, he's preached and he's taught, he's gone to a cross, he's died, he's risen from the dead and now he's about to ascend to the Father with his small band of just random collection of people. They're not trained. They're not necessarily amazing communities. They're an eclectic bunch of folk. And he says to them, he gives them this great commission. Go and make disciples. And then he ascends and he calls them to wait in Jerusalem and the Spirit of God comes and you read the book of Acts and the world's transformed forever. How do you define success in the church? Well, I think the answer is right here in a few key things. Number one, what I see, number one, the centrality of Christ in all things. The centrality of Christ in all things. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Guess what? The church is Jesus body. The church is his body. It doesn't matter what we do or achieve. It doesn't matter whether we have a few people or lots of people. It doesn't matter whether we have big buildings, no buildings, whatever. If it's not 
about Jesus, if it's not for Him, by Him, through Him and to Him, all of it is useless. If it's not about Christ, if Christ is, is, is not central and, and in and through everything, what is the point? It is meaningless. It's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. He looks at the world, he's meaningless, meaningless, except for glorifying God. It is all about Jesus, friends. And if we ever become about something other than Jesus, you need, if I'm around, you need to boot me out. Yes, promise me you will. We are His children. We are His people. We are His followers. It is His church, the centrality of Christ in all things. And if we can look honestly at each other in the eye of the church, not, the, not an organisation, but the gathering of, of believers, of people who love Jesus and want to follow Jesus. That's what the church is. It's the body of Christ, people who love Him and are following Him. If we can say we are for Him, that's the first step of success. When a church starts to be about something other than Christ, it doesn't matter how big it is, how much money they got in the bank, even what amazing programs they're running in the community, they've already failed. Because we've lost sight of why we are here. It's about the centrality of Christ in all things. Because all authority on heaven and earth has been given, not to me, to him. And then he gives us the authority by his spirit under him to go and walk for him. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Number two, so first, the centrality of Christ in all things. That's a measure of success. Number two, a measure of success is simply this. Therefore, go and make disciples. Everyone say disciples. Can I give you a Greek word? The Greek word here is the Greek word matheteo. Everyone say matheteo. And it can be translated to teach. But what it means is more than like a didactic standing up here and instructing people. It's not about telling people what to do. It's about this immersive, transformative teaching which totally reshapes the way I live my life. To make disciples... It means to, to go a different direction. It means to be consumed by who God is and to want to follow him, to become an apprentice, to become a pupil, someone who sits at Jesus' feet and says, where you go, I will go. What you say, I will say. What you do, I will do. So he says, go and make disciples of all nations, of all nations, how many of you look at that and get intimidated of all nations? I think sometimes we can read the scriptures and we can say, look what they didn't like. I, like, I struggled across the road by myself. I can't even figure out what I want to have for breakfast, whether it's eggs or wheat bix. How the heck am I going to make disciples of all nations? Do you know the amazing thing about what the disciples in hearing this did once they were filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you know where they went? They went home. They just began right where they lived. 
Friends, do you know in the Adelaide Hills right now, less than 10% of our population have a living, breathing faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Less than 10%. Less than, less than 45% have any religious affiliation, even an understanding that there is a God out there. Do you know that that actually is 7%, uh, that's 7% more than South Australia as a whole. So we are more irreligious than the rest of our state. And it's like 20% more than all of Australia. We live in one of the least church, the least Christian parts of this entire country. Did you know that? We have a mission field. Yes? You know, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful. Guess what? The harvest is plentiful, Hills Baptist Church. The harvest is, there is a mission field that is ripe for the picking. And the Lord has called you and me, every single one of us. He hasn't called just an organisation. He hasn't called just a pastor. You are the church. If you are in Christ, you are the church. And therefore this mission, this co-mission is for you. Whether you're five years old or 95 years old, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. The mission is ripe for the harvest. And I have this picture as I've been preparing this that what it's been like in the Adelaide Hills is a ministry of addition. It's like we have a few people walking in the harvest field just picking at the heads of grain. But what God is wanting to do through the church by the power of His Holy Spirit is to get the big old harvester out. Some of you farmers in the room know what I'm talking about. And just start to, and just start to collect the grain because the harvest is plentiful. I was chatting with a friend who I've met just recently who's doing some online evangelism. All he's done is made ads about Jesus. He was in online marketing. He thought, what if I use this for the gospel? And just in creating Christian ads with a simple click of, do you want to know more than Jesus? In the last year alone, he's seen over a thousand people say yes to, I want to know more about Jesus. In South Australia. I don't know why there's only a few people getting excited about that. I get really excited because what it means is the harvest is plentiful. And if we're prepared to say yes to the Great Commission and actually get on with what our forefathers started, we're celebrating 200 years of combined ministry. But the mission has not finished, church. Look around. This isn't the end of something. This is the ongoing continuation of a work that God wants to do and is continuing to do. Can I give you another, another William, Query, uh, William Carey quote? He said this, Is not the commission of our Lord still binding upon us? Can we not do more than we are now doing? When we look at this call of God, to make disciples, make disciples. I think for us as a church, there's a great encouragement here, but there's also a great challenge here. The great encouragement is the fact that, you know what? We can sit here and celebrate 200 years of combined ministry and we can look around the room and say, God's on the move. God's doing something. 
Even as we look back on the last year, we can celebrate that people have come to faith, that people have been baptized in the faith, that there is a move of God happening. But friends, it is just the very beginning. And when we look at the the world around us, the mission field, where we live, where God has put us, is not the great commission of our Lord still binding upon us? And if we can catch that, if the fire of God can so fill our hearts that we catch this great commission, that we would truly go into the world and make disciples, what might God do in our nation? If the church would rise up and not be content with a Sunday gathering, not be content with some Christian communion, but actually catch the commission, amen. I feel like preaching in a second, that we would catch the commission and make disciples. And I'm not going to keep you much longer, but friends, I see three elements of what this means. How do we make disciples? How do we measure success? The centrality of Christ in all things, make disciples, there's three parts to it. Here's number one. He says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Friends, first and foremost, a baptism. This is not just talking about that physical act of going into the water and coming up. The physical act of going into the water and coming up is a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality that someone has been consumed or immersed. That's what baptism means, to be consumed or immersed. Someone has been consumed or immersed in the heart of the Father, that they have caught the Father heart of God, that He loves you, that He is near to you, that He longs that you would know Him. This is what I spent time preaching about in a Middle Eastern nation to a whole bunch of Islamic people saying, God is not who you think he is. He is not distant and he is not angry and he is not one who you need to be afraid of. You are supposed to tremble before him, yes, but you can love him because he loves you and he longs for relationship with you. And when you catch the father heart of God that he is for you and not against you, something begins to change. To be baptized, consumed in the name of the Father and the Son. Yeah? The love of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul prays that we would know the height and the breadth and the width of the love of Christ. That we would have a revelation of who Jesus is. That not only is he real, not only is he a real historical person who did what the Bible says he did, but he can be known by us. That he loves us that we would be completely consumed by the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we catch the Father heart of God, that we would know the Son and that the Holy Spirit would come and indwell the church, that the church might go and do the very things that Christ has called us to do, amen. That we'd get a hold of what God is doing us because we're not supposed to cross the metaphorical road by ourselves. We can't. Do you understand that? I can't make disciples by myself, but Jesus came and he stepped out in the traffic and he gave his life and filled us with his Holy Spirit so that we would simply go in his power to see the transformation of our world. 
I long to see our world transformed. But first I long to see my own heart transformed. That Christ would truly be all in all. That I would be completely consumed and immersed in His love for me and His love for the world and understand that He said, David, you are a vessel like every other person here to go and share the love of Christ both through word and deed. I've given you my spirit. Now go in faith. It doesn't mean it's not scary sometimes. It was scary enough, again, having us coming, thinking, are we even gonna make it across this road? But God goes before us. And this brings us to that second thing that he says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What I love about this is Jesus summarized that really simply. He said, love God and love people. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. They're the commands of Christ right there. Here's a question, here's a challenge, and here's something that I've been wrestling with this last month. It's, do I really love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my mind and all my strength, all my might? It's a really good question to ask. We're walking around, again, the Middle East, it's hot, and uh, the pastor of the church, the, effectively an underground church there, we'd gone to spend time with, we went, he took us on this little tour. We were walking around and we were exploring some, an old Roman bath, like ruins. And uh, Craig and I got a bit hot and we thought, well, let's go get an ice cream. <laughs> so we walk off to get an ice cream and I turn around and there's this guy. I don't know if I'm allowed to say his name, Kathy, in, on this forum, so I'm not going to. But there he is, standing on a ruin on this wall, looking over this city with his arms raised, praying for the salvation of his nation. And I was so convicted. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh, all I'm thinking about is that I'm hot and I want an ice cream. And all he wants is for his nation to be saved. I just was, I was like, do I love God like that? Do I long for my nation? Do I pray for Adelaide? Like that, Craig turns to me and he goes, you know, sometimes he makes me wonder if I'm even a Christian. <laughs> Do you know why? Because he understood the centrality of Christ in all things and he loved the Lord, his God with all of his might and he actually loved his neighbor and he understood that true love longs for them to walk in the freedom of the gospel because that is the only way that they can truly have life and life to the full. Friends, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Would we catch a revelation of who Jesus is, amen? And walk in obedience to his commands. And then finally, we see an amazing encouragement and an amazing promise. Because in teaching them to obey everything it commanded you, Jesus says something that's so, so powerful. He says, and surely I am with you always to the when. Not the end of the day, 
not when things are good, but then I'll chuff off when things get difficult. Not when you feel that I am near you and I'm not around when you feel like I'm absent. Not when you're hearing my voice really clearly, but I've gone when all of a sudden you can't hear me because life's tough. No, he says, surely I'm with you, not even to the very end of your life, but to the very end of the age. For as long as there are human beings, but and, until the day that he comes back to make all things right, he is faithful to the very end. What a promise, church. What a promise. Do you know that God is faithful? Do you know that Christ is faithful to the promise that he gave us that he will build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it? Do you know that here? Do you know that he has numbered the very hairs on our head? Do you know that he even accounts for, like he feeds the sparrows, how much more will he feed and supply us? Do you know that? He is faithful to the very end, church. This is why we can go because guess what? Every day is ordered by Him. Every encounter is ordered by Him. We don't need to be afraid. He knows the answer. He knows the end from the beginning. He has us in the palm of His head. His promise is to be with us to the very end of the age. So why would we not go? This is the challenge to us as a church and it's a great encouragement. The encouragement, Christ is with us. It's His church. There's no pressure. It's just a faithful obedience because He is faithful to the very end. And the promise is that even when we are not faithful, it says that He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. How good is that? So when we stumble and when we make it about things that are not him and when we get caught up in nonsense or when we're doing really well and we feel like we're firing, nothing changes on his end. His love remains, his grace remains. He is faithful to the very end of the age. which means we don't need to find a ladder of good works to climb back to Him if we've stumbled. Which means if I'm wrestling with issues, I don't need to find a five-step process to get right with God before He can use me. No, no, He just finds you right where you are and He says, keep running, keep going, keep pressing on. Friends, 200 years of combined ministry speaks to one thing, not great pastoring, great leadership, great whatever. It speaks to the faithfulness of a great God. That's what we're here to celebrate today. The faithfulness of a great God. And it is a testimony to the church all over this country because there's not many churches that can celebrate 150 years of ministry. It's the faithfulness of a great God. That's our testimony. Yeah, that's our testimony. 
when that pastor from Dallas is like, hey, I'm hearing you got great success. No, no, no. The testimony is, no, God's good. He's faithful and He'll continue to be faithful, even in our wandering, even in our straying, even when we get things wrong. He is faithful. And long may we be faithful because of that. Because we've been baptised in the Name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, filled with His power, filled with a, an awe of who He is, truly caught a revelation of the love of God in Christ, understanding that we're nothing apart from that, that life is not worth living outside of the Gospel. It's all meaningless. We have the good news. We have the treasure of heaven. How much do we want our world to know that? Not because we want lots of numbers in a building, because we want heaven populated with the saints of Adelaide. Come on, somebody. That's my prayer for us. That 150 years from now, there'll be a, another celebration. And that celebration won't be able to fit in a building but there would be thousands of churches that have been planted right across the globe, that there's thousands of leaders who have been raised up right across the globe with one message, Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. That's our mission. What is success? It's the centrality of Christ in all things. And it's the making of disciples through faithful obedience to a faithful God. Full stop. May we be a church that is successful because Christ is central and disciples are made through faithful obedience to a faithful, life-transforming, loving God. Would you stand to your feet? As we finish, I wanna, I'm gonna pray words to a song and lots of you won't know this song because it's a bit old. It's by a guy called Robin Mark who wrote an album called Revival in Belfast. Oh, that's so good. Straight away, you're like. Oh dear. It's such a beautiful song. And it has been my prayer. It's been rattling around in my head the last couple of days. And I just want to pray this over us. And if you're here and you're like, Lord, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. I don't have much to offer. I'm just dust. But here I am. Send me. Lord, let me make disciples, which doesn't just mean read the Bible with already Christians. Discipling means to take someone from a pre-Christian to a saint, to share the gospel, knowing that he is faithful. If that's you, 
I want you just to put your hands out in front of yourself like you're ready to receive something from Him as we pray this prayer together. It says this, when it's all been said and done, there is just one thing that matters. Did I do my best to live for truth? Did I live my life for you? And when it's all been said and done, all my treasures will mean nothing. Only what I've done for love's reward will stand the test of time. Lord, your mercy is so great that you look beyond our weakness and find purest gold in miry clay, making sinners into saints. Lord, here we are. We thank you for your faithfulness for 200 combined years of ministry in this area. And we pray Lord, that what we have seen is just a scratch on the surface of what you are going to do. Send us, Lord, and by your power and your mercy and your grace, may the world know the love of God in Christ through a demonstration of the Holy Spirit power. that those stats would change and that Mount Barker and the Adelaide Hills would no longer be known as the least churched area in our nation, but the most. For the Holy Spirit has brought revival to our land. We praise you and we thank you in the precious name of Jesus and all God's saints said, We're going to continue to sing kids now is the time to go and have the best time. Have fun as we continue to worship. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.